Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 38. It says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, the greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Then he saith, I will return unto my host from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Let's pray before we continue. Again, Lord God, we just uh, thank you for your words. Thank you for the ministry of Jesus. And thank you for his sacrifice on the cross, Lord. Just ask, Lord, this morning that you would again guide my thoughts, guide my tongue to speak truth and to be clear in the things that I say. And I just pray that you would be glorified and that we would all be encouraged in this time, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. The first verse, verse 38, said, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. We need to take this in context. Follow the story, and I've been preaching through this paragraph by paragraph over the past few weeks, and so most of you are familiar with kind of where we're coming from. I'm just going to back up again just to refresh our, our memories and how absurd this statement is from the scribes and Pharisees. The beginning of the chapter, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field and they're questioned about breaking the Sabbath by plucking, plucking the heads of the, the grain and eating it. And then Gen Jesus enters into the synagogue And they present this man with a withered hand. And they question whether or not it's lawful to heal him on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, in his answer, just gives them an example that everybody present, not so much us today, but the people in Jesus' day would have been very familiar with the example of this idea of having a sheep. And if one fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, there's not a single person in that room of the scribes and the Pharisees 
that wouldn't have reached into that pit to lift that sheep out to save its life. And he concluded in verse 12, saying, Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day. And he immediately, he just turns to the guy with the withered up hand, the crippled man, and says, reach out your hand. And he reaches it out, and it was restored whole. He performs this miracle, healing this man on the Sabbath day. But as soon as he's done this, the Pharisees go out and they're holding counsel against him to plot against him how they're going to get rid of this guy, how they're going to kill him. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus leaves the temple, or this, the synagogue, and he's trying to get away, and the crowds of people follow him. And it says he healed every one of them. Any disease, any sickness, any problem that anybody had in that entire crowd was healed. And then they bring this man in verse 22. He says he's possessed with a devil. He's blind and dumb, meaning he can't speak. And there is something, and we talked about this, but that it is something significant about this man, something very noteworthy, that his possession by this devil was well known. It was a significant thing the case of this man because when Jesus casts that devil out and heals this man and now he can see and he can speak I can imagine the words that he said but it says the people were amazed well he's already healed a man's arm in the synagogue he's healed every disease and every problem that anybody in the crowd had and when they do when he does this to this man it says they're amazed. Why are they so amazed? And it's at that healing of this man that the Pharisees catch up with Jesus once again. And they accuse him of having a devil, casting out this devil by the power of Satan. And we looked at that conversation that Jesus had with them regarding that. And now, these same people are saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Have they not seen a sign? <laughs> He's performed countless miracles right in front of their faces. They've challenged him with crippled people, people filled with devils, and he's healed every one of them, cast out every devil. And now they say, we would see a sign. And so Jesus answers it says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is probably a terrible example, terrible illustration, but I remember as a child, and I, it's a terrible example because I don't remember the details of it, but I remember, as a child, sitting in the back seat of the car, driving wherever we're going, and trying to demand of God. And I don't remember if I had some specific thing 
or if it was just a general statement to God. But I wanted God to prove to me that he existed. And of course, whether, I, and like I said, I don't know if it was a specific thing that I was asking for as, as the proof, or if this is just a general, you know, do something that I'll know. Um, you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Why did nothing happen? Because of what Jesus says here. It says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given it. If you're demanding a sign, you don't want a sign. There is no sign that Jesus could have given these people at this time that they would have believed him. He's already healed countless people. He's performed countless miracles. And he doesn't even argue with them over it. He says, no sign is going to be given to you. <laughs> Except, and he points to Jonah. Knows, he knows. No matter what I do here, I could create life standing in front of them just as Moses stood in front of Pharaoh and God performed miracles through Moses and Pharaoh refused to believe. Pharaoh refused to turn. And these Pharisees, these scribes, are just like that. They're no matter what is presented to them, they are going to refuse to believe in Jesus. And he knows that. It's been proven time and again. And we're like that too. People in our day are just like that. I'm just going to read Matthew, or sorry, Romans chapter 1. A couple of verses here that speak to that. And I've turned here numerous times. It speaks to this idea of us demanding proof that God exists. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I think I've mentioned this friend before. A friend we used to, I met him, he was a student on a hiking trip that I was guiding, and we, we just kind of connected and liked each other's company, and he was into that sort of thing, and we hired him to help guide trips in the future. And so I spent many nights not many nights, but, you know, several, over the course of several years, we would do this hiking trip. It was three nights long, and we would spend the time in the tent together, and at night we would talk about different things. And through that time, I would attempt to witness to him, to share the gospel, to try to convince him of God and of Jesus and his need for forgiveness. And he would never concede to believing these things. Then one day, and I was running our garage at the time, and he walks into the garage one day with his newborn baby girl. And as he hands this 
newborn baby into my arms. He says, now I believe there's a God. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. There is none without excuse because God has proven over and over again to each of us of his existence, of his power and his Godhead and our need for him. And so we can't demand of God a sign and expect that he's going to give me specifically a sign to prove to me because I still wouldn't believe. If I won't believe from all that he's given us, I won't believe if he gives me a specific sign. Just like these Pharisees wouldn't believe Jesus if he gave them a specific sign at that time. But he says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And I'm going to turn there, maybe if you want to follow me in your Bibles, to Jonah chapter 1. It's not too far back in the Old Testament. If you look in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. I'm just going to... It's a short book. I'm just going to take the highlights out of here so that we don't spend all morning on this, but highly recommend going back and reading the whole story to get the whole picture later if you're interested. So... Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1, says, Now the word of the Lord <clears throat> sorry, came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a, tit, uh, sorry, a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and he went, down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. And there was some discussion on the ship as to what's going on, and then in verse 9, comes out and it says, And he said unto them, this is Jonah, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. And in verse 17, when they do this, it says, verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In chapter 2 it says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cry reason of mine infliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heard my voice. 
For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again upon thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me around about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. O Lord my God. And verse 10 says, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry ground. Now, I'll come back and we'll finish the story in a minute, but I'm going to suggest something that most people will probably disagree with, something that I doubt anybody, for the most part at least, has been ever taught before about this story. And I'm not necessarily right, but I think, it's, I think it fits with what was said here, mostly in any case. The question is, did Jonah die when he was swallowed by that fish? Did Jonah die and go to hell? Now, I've heard countless sermons or stories of this in Sunday school and whatnot, where people have come up with all kinds of fantastic explanations of some bubble in some kind of fish's head where Jonah might have been able to survive for these three days inside of this thing and this miraculous preservation of his life for these three days and three nights. And I know that's the common interpretation of the story but I don't think it fits exactly with the picture that it's portraying of Jesus. Did Jesus lay in the grave, not quite dead for three days and three nights? <laughs> if it's a picture of Jesus, Jonah has to die. Because Jesus died. Now, bear with me. I'm, I'll try to prove it. I can't prove it definitely here, but read what he says. Read the description of his circumstances here. It says, I cried by reason of my affliction, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heard my voice. Now I know that we can describe our circumstances as hell. This is Figuratively, we can do that. But is it possible that Jonah is literally in hell, crying out to God, and God hears him? It says, For thou cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves pass over me. I am cast out of thy sight. It says, The waters compass me about, even to the soul. And the depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped about my head. And in verse 6 it says, Yet hast thou brought my life 
from corruption. Oh, Lord, my God. When he was released from that fish, it says he brought my life from corruption. If you're swallowed by an animal and you're living, if you're <laughs> living, if you're inside of that animal's belly for three days, there's corruption. You're getting digested. <laughs> Your body is not in good condition when that fish gets sick and pukes you out onto the shore. I can assure you that you are not in a good position. So whether this is just describing a horrific physical experience, but I would suggest that it's actually beyond that. This is, I believe, Jonah was cast into the ocean, or the sea, whatever, and drowned, and was swallowed. And I believe his soul is in hell as his body is decomposing inside of this fish. And from that position, is crying out to God. I'll come back to that in a second. But if follow me through in chapter 3 to the response of the people. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, So the people of Nineveh, Jonah goes to Nineveh after this being puked up onto the shore. And he preaches the message that God told him to preach. And then it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and he covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that, was, that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Jonah's message is that God's about to destroy this city because of your sin. You are all about to die. Can you imagine a better preacher than one that just rose from the dead, coming from hell? <laughs> he is convinced of God's wrath. He is convinced of the power of God against people disobeying him. And there could be no more effective preacher than that man. we go to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read a bit of a passage. I'm going to start in verse 23, maybe 22 here. It says, Ye men of Israel, this is Peter is preaching to men of Israel, Jews, um, after Jesus' resurrection, after he has ascended out of their sight, and the Holy Ghost has come. This is, just, this is either on or just after the day of Pentecost. And he says, Ye men of Israel, 
hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. He did all these miracles that we keep reading about. But he gave the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that has been fulfilled at this point. Miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so he's talking to part of the crowd that was present cheering on the crucifixion of Jesus. They are partly at least responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 24 says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death can't hold Jesus. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. In other words, David suffered corruption. His body rotted away. This is not talking about David. This is talking about Jesus. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath had sworn with an oath to him, that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, that's Jesus, was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Wherefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, Peter preaches this sermon, and this is a large part of it, not the whole thing that I just read, He's preaching it to the people who crucified Jesus. And he points them back to the miracles, the signs and wonders. And he describes Christ and the prophecy through David of the resurrection. And it says 
They were pricked in their hearts. They believed. And if you... He's pointing back to this prophecy of the sign of the prophet Jonah as picturing what was about to happen to Christ. His death, his burial, his soul in hell. It says that his soul was not left in hell. It had to have gone there and then been resurrected. And neither did his flesh see corruption. Jesus' flesh was buried in a grave, but only for three days, and it was resurrected. It was brought back to life. It didn't corrupt. It didn't decompose. But when they heard this, when they understood the sign of the prophet Jonah, that Jesus went through the same thing that Jonah went through, they believed. Just like the people of Nineveh believed after seeing Jonah go through that. Now I know not everybody likes this idea that the Bible is saying that Jesus' soul went to hell. And I'll be honest, I didn't, I don't think I ever heard that growing up in the church. And the first time I heard it, I was rather opposed to it myself. And then I started to see it described in the Bible. In Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, and I talked about this last week, but it says the wages of sin is death. Is he talking about our physical death? Is he talking about us just physically dying and getting buried in the grave? in this verse. If that was the case, then there is no need for what we read in Revelation chapter 20, is there? Revelation 20, verse 14 says, Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The wages of sin, the punishment for sin, is not just our physical death. We all are going to die that physical death, but there is an eternal soul that is going to live on. And death and the grave isn't the end of that story. And so was Jesus' death on the cross the end of the story for our sin? Our sin belongs in eternal hell. And I believe that that is what this is teaching in that Jesus' soul was not left in hell. He bore our sins and took them to where they belong in, in eternal punishment. I know I need to build on that further, so if you want to turn with me to Luke 16. And I hope if this is new or different from what you're used to, that you're following and trying to understand what I'm saying, seeing if the Bible actually is teaching what I'm saying. If it doesn't, then correct me later. That's fine. <laughs> 
Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 22. It says, And it came to pass, and this is in the middle of the story, but this is the important part for us. It came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went from unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And this just carries on that thought. It doesn't matter what the sign is. <laughs> you can have someone come from the dead and you're still not going to be convinced if your heart is hard towards God, if you're not willing to believe God from the, what he's already shown you. Some fantastic thing isn't going to change that. But let's back into here. This description of the place is interesting because it describes that Lazarus went to place some, in other places is referred to as paradise, but the rich man is in hell. But in hell, he was able to lift up his eyes and see Lazarus afar off, and he was able to speak to Abraham and beg for comfort from the flame. The rich man isn't laying in a grave, unaware. He is in hell, a place of torment that Revelation 20 says is going to be cast into a lake of fire, a permanent, there's going to be a judgment, and this is a permanent judgment in this lake of fire. And hell is going to, you know, whoever is in hell is also going to be cast into there. But at this point, that's, there's a change in the future. But at that point, hell and paradise are in the same area. They're within the proximity of each other. They can't cross back and forth, but they can see and communicate, apparently, is this description. And just a, a side note on this, if you're looking at, I don't know what each different translation of the Bible uses here, I know the, the Greek word that is used both in 
Acts chapter 2, and here in Luke chapter 16 is the word Hades. Some versions may have translated that to grave. Because some people, some translators, think that this is just talking about the grave that Jesus was raised out of. It's the same word used here in Luke 16 that is described as a place with fire and torment. This isn't just the grave. This is beyond a hole in the ground that the word Hades is being used to describe. Stay with me. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4 and in verse, starting in verse 8, it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, this is Jesus we're talking about, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is describing the process that Jesus went through after his death. And we know he ascended. The apostles saw him, his resurrected body, ascend into heaven. But it's describing this, that he also first descended, not just into a hole in the ground, but to the lower parts of the earth, into hell. And I would say that this description in Luke 16 is the description of that location and you're about to ask me, what about Luke 23, verse 43, where the thief on the cross asks Jesus for forgiveness, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that's not that hard now, is it? If hell and paradise are in the same vicinity. If Jesus took our sin and went to hell, he didn't stay there. <laughs> And paradise is right there. Jesus can cross that gulf. <coughs> a human soul couldn't. Is that something to do with the keys also? I'm just curious. Keys? I couldn't say. Okay. I couldn't say. I'd have to really look at that one. I don't understand that fully yet. Um, remember... In, in Hebrews chapter 9, I won't read it this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 9, and various parts of Hebrews, just talks about the Old Testament sacrifices, that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't pay for the sins of man. All the sacrifices that the Old Testament believers did, all the process that they went through in the worship at the temple, and all the sacrifices that they sacrificed, were temporary. They were just pictures of what Jesus was going to fulfill as a permanent sacrifice. Jesus was sufficient to pay for our sins 
a lamb or a calf or these other things. Their blood was just a picture of what Jesus was going to accomplish. God couldn't yet let those people into his presence in heaven because Jesus hadn't yet actually paid for their sins. They were in a captive place, a place held for the future. And this is what we're seeing where Lazarus is located in what is described as Abraham's bosom. It's described as paradise in other places. One more passage is in 1 Peter. We'll hopefully finish tying this together. 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 18. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us unto God, being put to death by the flesh, but quickened in the spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, does now save us, not the putting of the way of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subjects unto him. Chapter 4, just a few more verses. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the loss of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. I'm sure some of you have experienced this. You used to do these things, and now your old friends wonder why you don't participate in that stuff anymore. And they speak evil of you as if there's something wrong with you for not participating in their sin. (laughs) The sin that you used to take part in. Anyway. For who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead, that they, they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. This is describing that point where Jesus went, and it's okay. (laughs) He preached to the saints that were captive in the heart of the earth, in paradise, Abraham's bosom, across from hell, where the man on the cross went to be with Jesus at that time because Jesus needed to present the gospel. He needed to present himself, preach what all of that Old Testament law 
was preparing them for. And it says he led captivity captive after he preached to them what the true gospel was. That the blood of the bulls and goats and the lambs couldn't actually pay for their sins. It was just a picture of what Christ was going to do for them. And so he went into the lower parts of the earth to do this, to redeem those people, to take them once that message had been preached to them to heaven. If you pay attention in John chapter 20, right after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to Mary. I can't remember if there was anybody else present at that point. In John chapter 20, verse 17. But he appears to Mary, and he says to her, Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Why would he say that? In the same chapter, the next chapter, the second time that he appears to the disciples, he says to Thomas, reach your hand, touch me, put your hand in my side, your fingers in the holes in my hands. Thomas is allowed to touch him, but Mary wasn't because he hadn't yet ascended. It's like Jesus had just been down preaching to these souls that are in that place. And he wasn't done. <laughs> the job wasn't done, but he's resurrecting to show himself to these people. And he says, I'm not quite done yet. I still have a little bit more to do. And he has to, so he presents himself so that they know. And then he goes and finishes that job, taking those people up to heaven. And if you reread these passages that I've been through, you will see that that's kind of the picture of what's taking place. Where they can then spend eternity with God. And so somehow, because Jesus ascended semi-permanently until his second coming, after that, we saw that in, in Acts, we can see that in Acts chapter 1, but there's this unseen event that has to have taken place in the end of John between these two events of him appearing to the, to the woman and then to the disciples, because there's a different rule applied in there. Back in our passage, and this is really the, the important point of it, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah went through this experience. And whether you agree with me that he actually physically died and went to hell, or if he was survived in the fish for these days, it was a picture of what Christ was going to do. In my mind, the picture isn't complete until Jonah dies and goes to hell because Jesus died and his soul went to hell and then was resurrected from there. But these people responded. These Gentiles that didn't know God's law responded to what happened 
to Jonah when he preached God's vengeance against their sin, he knew what God's judgment against sin was going to be like. From what I see, Jonah knew what hell was like, what the end of these people was going to be. And he could describe that in such a way that they got fear in them and they repented. But Jesus is saying, those people are going to condemn you because I'm standing here and I'm greater than Jonah. I have a greater message. I am more convincing than Jonah. And you're not believing me. If you don't believe Christ, those people from Nineveh are going to condemn you with God at that judgment day. What a fearful thing to realize, that judgment that's coming. And to realize that it's not because God rejected you, but because you rejected God. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, I've been through a lot of scriptures and I've said some things that are different from what people are used to hearing. So Lord, I just ask that you would help us to put our feelings aside, put our opinions aside, and trust your word to be true. Um, I pray that people would search the scriptures as Bereans would and see if these things are so, to see if the things that I'm saying are right and true and come to their own conclusion on these, Lord. But Lord, we know the message of our need of salvation is true. We know that our sin will condemn us to an eternity of suffering. And Lord, we need you. We need the forgiveness that Jesus has offered by taking our place, being sacrificed as a perfect lamb. So we thank you for that, Lord. And please just help us to grow as we continue to study your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.